Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. So we're going to do something a little bit different for this week's episode. We are going to interview somebody outside of the Air Force. Retired Commander Vincent Aiello, or Jello, as he is most frequently called, is a former FA-18 pilot for the Navy, former Top Gun instructor, and the host for the Fighter Pilot Podcast. He is a fantastic resource for knowledge and just has some really good stories to tell. What do you think, Reed? Oh, absolutely. So this is a little bit of a fanboy moment that he joined us on our podcast. Been listening to his for a little while now. Great content. And for any airman, big gay airman who likes to fly or likes airplanes, I highly recommend his podcast. Yeah, I have learned so much about my own service because of his podcast that makes me a better officer, a better airman, and was one of the primary reasons why I reached out to Jello and, and invited him to do this interview because I knew that he had information and knowledge and experience that was going to be of huge benefit to our audience and wanted to highlight him here as well as encourage everybody in our audience to go and check out the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Yeah, let's get down to it, Colin. Looking forward to this one. Today, I'm joined by Vincent Aiello, retired commander from the Navy, former pilot and host of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Yes. Hello, Colin. And just to keep this in the vein of aviation, I'm going to spend the rest of the show calling you Jello, if that's okay. Absolutely. That's the, the call sign that you have earned, both, I'm sure, rightfully and infamously. <laughs> well, I don't know if there was too much infamy involved with it when it was being made, but certainly in the years following in my career, I'm sure I did enough buffoonery to, yes, it's associated with me and my buffoonerous acts. I just have this picture in my mind of, you know, you in like that big Kool-Aid suit, like busting <laughs> through walls or something, but... <laughs> No, I, I don't think I ever did that. Although when my wife was pregnant, I always used to call her Hey Kool-Aid when she would wear red and that never scored me any points. But no, I, I think Jello just rhymed with ILO and that, that, that was it. So what you're saying is that your, your Navy compatriots at the time just weren't be, feeling very creative. Well, they took it easy on me. Something else must have, it must have been overcome by events, let's say. Okay. You never did anything to earn you something else as well, so... Must have been a very good and distinguished career. That, that, that stuck, I should say. I put the wrong fuel in a rental car in, uh, where were we? We were in the Netherlands one time. So it almost turned into diesel, but <laughs> they decided diesel was too cool. So they just went back to Jello. <laughs> but yeah, needless to say, our trip to Amsterdam was uh, set back a couple hours with that act. That's awesome. <laughs> All right, Jello. Well, on that wonderful note, let's hear about your career. Maybe not uh, so much about that time in Amsterdam. We want to hear about the other things that you did while you were in the Navy. 
you know, give us the, the, the full background. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? What led you into the Navy? So on and so forth. Okay. Well, my father was a World War II veteran. He was a foot soldier in Europe, but he didn't talk much about it. He and my mother divorced at a young age. My stepfather showed up and he took us to the Naval Air Station Point Magoo Air Show in November of 1978. I was eight years old. And I remember seeing the aircraft and the swagger of the pilots and the sound and the noise. And back then, they actually would shoot missiles and rockets in air shows right there in the infield. At, oh, that's at, cool. At uh, Point Magoo. Yeah, I can still picture it. So I was smitten. And like any eight-year-old, you know, you're excited about one thing until the next thing comes along. But for me, it never left me. And I didn't think too much about it. I wouldn't say it was something I thought about every single day. But my stepfather in the 10th grade of high school sat me down one day. I remember the discussion vividly. He said, okay, what are you going to do? You got a couple of years left. And I said, well, I don't know. Standard answer, right? And he said, well, you've been interested in this fighter pilot stuff. Why don't you go for it? And that was the beginning, as I like to say, of my personal montage, if those exist in real life, where you start working harder at everything you're doing and <laughs> making the effort. And got through high school with very middle of the bell curve performance on tests and school scores and grades and everything else. And so the Naval Academy said, thanks, but no thanks. Never really thought of the Air Force Academy. And that's not a slight against you guys. For whatever reason, I just always knew I wanted to be Navy. And I was not accepted initially to the school. I wanted to go both the Academy and civilian. So I ended up at University of California, Irvine for two years. And because I was in the UC system, I was able to transfer to UCLA as a junior. And I also picked up a Navy ROTC scholarship and so finished there with a degree in mathematics and was lucky enough to pick up pilot training, went to Pensacola and did sufficiently well to pick up jets. And then at the end of jets was selected for F-18s and then basically flew F-18s almost my entire career. I only had one time where I was out of the cockpit and that was necessary anyway, because I was getting well from a medical situation, but ended up serving almost 25 years Ended up with, what, 3,800 hours, 705 carrier-arrested landings, five deployments, one more on the ground in Afghanistan. And I would say the high-water mark for my career was I was a Top Gun instructor. And it's nothing like the movie. It is everything <laughs> about being around professionals who hold you to the highest standard. You get really good at basic BFM and section and division or two-ship and four-ship, as you would call it, execution. And that was the pinnacle of me as a human being and as in my career, I would say. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, we know that if the Top Gun movie act was actually true to life, it wouldn't be a very good movie. It would be really <laughs> rather boring, don't you think? Excessively boring, yes. So thank goodness for some liberties. But uh, that is one of the things I harp on on my podcast all the time. It's called the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And I tried to dispel the myths that exist between how Hollywood perceives fighter pilots and how we really are. And it's, it's quite a wide gap. But again, to your point, no one's going to come watch a show about us debriefing every belabored point for two, three hours after a mission. They want to just say gutsiest move I ever saw and move on. So, And we'll talk about it a little bit later, but just for our audience, Top Gun in the Navy is somewhat equivalent to the weapons school in the Air Force. Would you say that that's a, a good way of describing it? I would. In fact, they are both called the Fighter Weapons School. For us, it's the Navy Fighter Weapons School. I would say that the difference is the Navy 
fighter weapon school or top gun concentrates on more unit level tactics if you will so two ship four ship maybe a large force of eight but not the big as i understand comprehensive mass strikes that you do in the air force where all your weapon schools come together you've got the, the b1 b2 folks you've got what i assume the csar i don't know that much about it i need to have a show on this on my own podcast simply so i can learn about it but we i would say are more tactical and i get the feeling although there is a lot of that in the air force there's an element of the more strategic there and for us that is followed on later in our air wing mission commander syllabus that the O4s will go through in their mid-tours uh, on their way to being commanders later. And uh, so you don't have to be a Top Gun graduate to be an air wing strike leader, but that does come a little bit later. Okay. Yeah, definitely want to dig into that a little bit more. But I think before we can do that, we need to, first of all, kind of lay the groundwork of what naval aviation is to begin with. I mean, when anybody thinks about the Navy, it's very easy to imagine there's the, the aircraft carrier, there's the, the battleship and all the destroyers and everything that's out there around it. We know about submarines. And so we know about surface warfare from just kind of like imagining it in our mind, right? But like I said, that there is that aircraft carrier, which has that capability it's a floating airfield that enables the projection of air power from the sea. So take it from there, if you don't mind, and give us the broad strokes of naval aviation, uh, what it is and why it exists. All right. Well, I think if you go back in history, you'll find plenty of warfare commanders all the way back from before the United States even existed as a country that will say you have to have command of the sea and the sea lanes in order to to do the things you want to do as a nation. And so the United States Navy exists for that purpose. We are patrolling the seven seas year-round, and it is our job to project power. It's just one more of the diplomatic and militaristic tools that the country has to have our way, whether it's trade or a way of life or whatever. And I'm sure there's probably far more eloquent descriptions than that, but I think people are hopefully familiar with why we have a Navy in the first place. And the aviation part of it is just another element, as you alluded, Colin, where if you're going to control the sea, you have to control it above, below, and, and on, and even in space now. And there's a whole different discussion on that, of course. But yes, we have an aviation branch. I remember one time I told someone I was a fighter pilot and that I was on an aircraft carrier. And they said, oh, are you in the Air Force? I said, no, I'm in the Navy. And they, they just didn't know what that meant. And to be fair, there are countries that their ships will have, let's say, a helicopter embarked and it will be an Air Force pilot uh, from that country. So the Navy has its own aviation branch and it has its own three-star admiral in charge of it, the commander of Naval Air Forces. And we have pretty much everything there is short of heavy bombers. So we have fighters. We have not dedicated attack aircraft, but fighter and attack. And we have helicopters, patrol planes. We have aerial refueling. We have UAVs or UASs or whatever today's terminology is. And the whole idea is it's either power projection from the sea or it is control of the sea. So a lot of anti-submarine, a lot of anti-ship warfare. And in your case, as you talked about the carrier, a lot of project, uh, pull up off your coast, project power inland if necessary. And then, of course, with our gator fleet for the marines the embarked marine aircraft which are department of the navy as well 
that will support the Marines on the ground. So we almost have, in a sense, our own entire military because, in a sense, with the Marines, we have soldiers as well. And, of course, we have the special forces with the SEALs. And so it is really an involved branch conglomeration. I'm not sure what else to call it. I, I can't sit and quote how many people and how many aircraft, but I'm sure it's quite large, probably ranks up in the top 10 of all air forces by numbers, I would think, worldwide. Right. Yeah, I don't know what the exact ranking is. I'm sure that there's somebody in our audience that will keep us smart on that. But you know, the, the largest air force is going to be the United States Air Force. And then the second largest one is the Naval Air Force. Right. Yeah, I think that's probably true. But uh, again, we'd need to do a little research. Not impossible. Sure. Yeah. So based on your explanation, I guess to summarize, and you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, is that the aviation branch of the Navy exists to support the Navy as a whole in its efforts to protect the interests of the United States and to project air power from the sea. Is that correct? I think so. Uh, the only point I would make is that when we chop to different fleets, like 5th Fleet or the CENTCOM, I guess, so Central Command, so when an aircraft carrier pulls in, let's say, to the Persian Gulf, Arabian Gulf, still not sure what to call it, then the aircraft will fall under the, I haven't thought of some of these terms in a while, but uh, who is it? The, uh, the CFAC? Yeah, so the CFAC under the CAOC. The Combined or Joint Air Force Component Commander. Good. I'm glad you could remember because I'm too busy thinking about other things for the last couple of years since I retired. Okay. So when the aircraft carrier pulls in and chops to that agency, if you will, then we fall under the air tasking order and our aircraft will be tasked to go do missions alongside, theoretically, Air Force aircraft. So you might have fighters coming up from somewhere. and I don't know where they come out of anymore, but it could be Kuwait or what, Oman or someplace, and let's say we're doing missions over Iraq, well, you might have F-16s coming from LUD uh, or somewhere else, and you might have F-18s coming from the carrier, and they're all operating off the air tasking order. So I think when we are not in a situation like that or just out in more open seas, then of course, yes, the only thing we're doing are the Navy taskings, but we will routinely, as we have for, what, last quarter century, chop aircraft carriers almost continuously to the CENTCOM AOR and provide aircraft for Afghanistan, Iraq, what are they calling it now? It's uh, Inherent Resolve. And so there's a lot of different missions and we'll fly right alongside those folks. And in fact, one pilot at a time will be sent from the carrier into the KAOC or JAOC to act as a liaison for the ship helping to make sure that everyone at the KAOC knows what the ship can do and everyone on the ship knows what the KAOC is thinking. Yeah, so maybe the simpler way to say why naval aviation exists is it depends. It depends on what's <laughs> going on in the world and, and where air power is needed. Well, I'm laughing because, yeah, that's our favorite answer on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And it's simply so many things have so many variables and Again, I was a math major, so you have to have at least as many equations as you do variables to solve it. And there's always more variables in aviation, whether it's naval or Air Force or whatever. So, yes, I mean, when the schedule is written, let's say it's the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower. Well, OK, you're going to be in the, as we would call it, Fifth Fleet AOR from this date to this date. And so they'll build around that. They will plan to leave their home port 
and go. And if they are lucky enough to get a port visit these days, not so much with all the pandemic stuff. But if you were previously going to do a joint exercise on the way or get a port visit, then you do all that. But you chop in at the right time. And then at the end, you typically out chop right about the time some other aircraft carrier is showing up, depending on if there's a need. And so the rest of the time is it's kind of up to whatever other commander you're serving, but also the strike group and the carrier and the air wing themselves. And so, uh, but yeah, the tasking is generally done at a high level that I should probably know. I did do my JPME phase one a long time ago, but I've dumped all that. And all I know is that people tell you where to go, you show up ready and, and off you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is an important skill to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. So with that basic understanding of naval aviation existing for the purpose of projecting air power from the sea, supporting the, the air tasking order, depending on the need of that coalition or joint forces air component commander, let's get more into the detail of your personal experience as a naval aviator. You mentioned that you started off in Pensacola going through flight school. We'd love to hear a little bit about that. We can get into more specifics of your time at, as an instructor at Top Gun. Kind of walk us through some of the highlights, the lowlights of being a naval aviator. Sure. Well, I will start with some levity, frankly. Uh, my very first day we thought would be the FAM-1. Of course, after a bunch of academics and everything leading up to that point, we got weathered out, uh, standard panhandle of Florida, so you never know what's going to happen. And so that we rescheduled for early the next morning. And this is, of course, before internet and email and all that. But my phone rings and, uh -huh, you know, I'm still asleep. Ensign Aiello? Oh, crap. So I like to say that I overslept for my very first flight. Uh, and the only reason I, I didn't get a ready room down, as it's called, is that we had briefed it the day before. I was well prepared and answered all the questions. And we just didn't go because of the weather. So my on-wing took it easy on me. Uh, but we did go out <laughs> and, and fly. And it was fun. And I got airsick, I will confess. And I had to do what I had to do. And, and the instructor was familiar with that. So he took the controls for a little bit and said, you feel okay? I said, sure. So <laughs> kept going. Uh, and then on my FAM 2, got a little queasy, but uh, didn't need to use the bag. FAM 3, just a hint. And by then on, it was fine. And then somehow at the very end of my training, and this was, by the way, in the T-34 Turbo Mentor, uh, which is a low-wing beach-looking uh, turboprop aircraft, as the name implies. Uh, and then for some reason, on the very last flight, I was in the back seat where they'll have a little instrument hood. They can have you pull forward like a shower curtain so you can't look outside and all you do is fly on the instruments. And I must have been dehydrated or something else. I ended up getting a little bit sick on that one as well. <laughs> Are you establishing a trend for the rest of your career? <laughs> well, I'll get to that, actually. But yeah, <laughs> they have to write it down because if you never get over it, they need a, a tracker of it. But anyway, did sufficiently well that I was selected for jets, as I said earlier, and then moved from Pensacola up to Meridian, Mississippi, and started off flying the T2C Buckeye, which is now retired. And that was a fun little airplane, very forgiving. Great big bathtub of a cockpit, a lot of fun. And did fine. Didn't get airsick there. And I want to say it was not until I got to advanced jet training in the TA-4J Skyhawk, which was a blast to fly, left over from the Vietnam era, if you will. And I think I might have gotten sick one more time there. But after that, I never really had any trouble with air sickness. So if your listeners are aspiring pilots, I want to tell you, your body will build a tolerance, I hope. Uh, some don't. Some never get over it. But most do. 
And even later on, I remember I was probably well past 2,000 hours in the Hornet. I was flying up in the backseat of an F-18F Super Hornet to from Lemoore in the Central Valley of California up to Fallon because I was at the weapons school, which is a different discussion, but the, the weapons school at the bases is like a satellite of Top Gun to do local stuff with the squadrons that are there. And, and I was the operations officer. We were getting some graduates from the Top Gun class. So the Commodore and I went up there and Commodore Steve Foley, call sign Axel, former Blue Angel, former two-time Top Gun instructor. This dude is King Kong. And so he, he goes, hey, Jello, let's let's dive down into this bombing range and do a couple practice attacks real quick. Like, okay, no problem. So he's raging around down low, just pulling a bunch of Gs, doing low-altitude attacks and just raging. And I'm sitting back there thinking, I can kind of see the clock ticking down. Like, oh, man, if this keeps up, I've got about five minutes and I'm going to be probably reaching for a bag, which I always carried in my G-suit my entire career. And uh, he, you know, at one point he goes, how you doing back there? And I, you know, kind of glurp it down to my throat. I'm like, oh, I'm fine. You know, and then go back to feeling blue. And finally I'm watching the gas gauge and I'm thinking, oh man, he's got to be done soon. And sure enough, we pull in. I was just drenched in sweat and just miserable and newfound appreciation for what we call, by the way, naval flight officers, the NFOs, the folks in the back. And so I don't know how those folks do it, but they do a good job. And, um, Anyway, so I I didn't get sick, but even to the end of my career, I would get queasy. But after that, as far as that goes, I I wouldn't say I breezed through flight school, but I did sufficiently well in each stage. I could not drop a bomb in the A4 to save my life. It was the old style, had to put the mills in, and then you had to get the exact right point in space uh, to get the bomb to hit due to gravity where you want it. And I was no good at that whatsoever, but they ended up picking me for F-18s and I was winged in July of 1995, and I just, I, I really loved it because for me, I was basically living or fulfilling a childhood dream. So it was, I, I want to say I enjoyed it. Plus, I met my wife in flight school. Uh, she was a civilian, but, uh, you know, now we're still happily married. Oh, man. So, now yeah. that sounds like Top Gun. <laughs> well, it was. We met on St. Patrick's Day at a, uh, at a bar in Pensacola. She was on spring oh, break finishing college, and I was waiting to start flight school, and we have a picture we always post on our social media every, every St. Patrick's Day. It was taken by one of her friends a couple minutes after we met. We both have these grins on our faces and little did we know. But yeah, that, 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 yes. I didn't serenade her, though, if that's what you're getting at, Colin. <laughs> I, or you at least won't admit to it. <laughs> well, not then. I, I, I do now, you know. All right. So you went through the flight school. You made it to your first duty station, which was where? Well, so I went to my training command for F-18s, which was at the then still existing Marine Corps Air Station El Toro, south of Los Angeles near Disneyland. And I mentioned earlier, I went to UC Irvine. Well, I used to ride my bicycle when I was putting off studying over to the gate line and watch aircraft F-4s, A-4s taking off out of El Toro. And I thought, man, this is what I want to do. How am I going to make it happen? And even then I thought, well, there's no way I'll ever end up here because this is a Marine base. Well, little did I know six years later, I was back as a Navy student at a Marine squadron flying F-18s. And it was the best year of my life. Had a, just a great time hanging out in Orange County. I had a great big truck, you know, from like Mississippi with big wheels on it and just having a good time. And then after that, I was sent back to Florida. My first duty station was VFA 86, which was a F-18 squadron in Cecil Field, Jacksonville, Florida. So El Toro closed after I left. And then after I left 86, Cecil closed. So I was kind of a wrecking ball there for a oh, while. Yeah. 
if you don't mind, explain for us what is meant by VFA. We hear on the Air Force that your squadrons and groups and wings are, are designated by numbers as well. So like the first fighter squadron, we know what that is, but what does VFA mean or some of those other acronyms that designate Navy units? Yeah, so although not necessarily to be confused with, say, an FA-18 or an FB-111, I mean, the letters are generally kind of used the same. But in the case of squadron nomenclature, you've got either an H or a V, generally. And the H, of course, is for helicopter. V is for fixed wing. And I forget where it came from. I don't know if it was some language other than English where the V was involved with that. But if you think of aviation and whatever, I'm, I'm not a linguistic expert, but I think somewhere back there, there was something where V means fixed wing. And so that's the fixed wing. And then if it was my training squadron, let's say it would have been VMFAT 101. And that V was again, fixed wing. M was Marine. F was fighter. A was attack. And then T was trainer. And so for VFA 86, it would be just fixed wing fighter and attack. So an S3 squadron, which is now gone, but just to make the point, they would be in, let's say, VS-32, and the S would be for anti-submarine. A P-3, or now P-8 Orion patrol aircraft, would be in a VP squadron. When I was in training, it was a VT squadron, so T for training. And then helicopters, you might have HS, the S again being anti-submarine, or HC. So there's a lot of different letters, but yeah, the H and the V are rotary wing and fixed wing, respectively. Okay. And then is there going to be just one squadron in a location at a time? You, you mentioned you were at the VFA 86. Was there more than one VFA in one, more than one squadron at that location to form a group and then more to form an air wing? Or how is naval aviation organized like that? Yeah. So you'll have bases that will be the master base, if you will, for different types of aircraft. So back then, Cecil Field in Jacksonville, Florida, was the East Coast jet base for F-18s and S-3s. So there are numerous squadrons up and down the flight line, each with their own hangar spaces. And they all belonged to the position we call the Commodore or the wing. And, and the type wing is the administrative, think heads and beds, training, manning, equipping. These are the folks that take care of making sure you have everything you need. But then VFA 1 and 2, let's say, which those don't exist. Well, 2 does. But at any rate, you might take two squadrons, let's say, and they belong to a carrier air wing. And air wings will go out and come back. And when they're out, they belong from the operational point of view to the air wing which also chops to the ship and the strike group, and off they go. But even while they're deployed, the type wing is still involved with sending them the right personnel for, let's say, ordnance or whatever they might need, administrative people or parts, and, and they are involved with that, whether they're home or deployed. And so at that time, the F-14s were all up in Oceana. The helicopters were all over at Mayport. And so when a ship would pull out, let's say the USS John F. Kennedy, which used to be based right there in Mayport, Florida, uh, just northeast Jacksonville, it would pull out and the helicopters would jump on right away before it got very far. And then the rest of us, we'd have folks that would show up the night before to get on before it embarked. But then the rest of us would fly out and bring the aircraft aboard. And then you'd go out as a team. And when you come home, then you'd all disperse again. And of course, you'd know folks and you're still part of an air wing. But when you just get home from deployment and there's no plan for you to deploy anytime soon, 
your air wing kind of takes a back seat. You, you still, particularly the commanding officers of the squadrons will still report to them for various things. But at that point, once you're ashore, you're not worried about deploying anytime soon, then you report mostly to the type wing. Okay. And so the, the type wing is then the, the operational organization that is no longer strictly concerned with training, but with providing that capability to that combatant commander. Is that accurate? Well, so now we're starting to blur the line a little bit. So for example, it used to be that the Navy would send onesie twosie squadrons on deployments that were not on a carrier. And the Marine Corps does this all the time. So they'll send squadrons over to Okinawa, Japan, or Middle East bases. And I presume, I'm not the right person to have on the show to talk to this, but in that case, yes, it is the type wing commander that says, hey, here's all the equipment you need. Here's all the FLIRs, all the people, all the spare parts, aircraft, et cetera, and off you go, and then you chop over. But again, the, the exact terminology is escaping me, but generally speaking, the type wing is more of the man, train, and equip versus take you out and be operational. That would be more like the air wing, and, and that terminology is CVW. So carrier air wing, and so a type wing might, like in Lemoore right now, you actually have two. You have a wing for the F-18s and you have a wing for the F-35s. But the wing commander for the F-18s, that's all he cares about, are those squadrons, their personnel. Of course, he'll talk to his compatriot there, but they, they might, because people can go back and forth. But of course, the parts and all the aircraft and all that are pretty much stovepiped. So... You have to work with the folks to get the right people and all those other parts. But then it's the air wing that will take squadrons from different type wings and put them together as an actual fighting force. Okay. All right. And then you're kind of alluding to how these different squadrons are organized. They, they're not necessarily self-sufficient. They don't have all of the personnelists, the maintainers, the fuels teams within one squadron, they're kind of farmed out to different organizations, different units. And then that air wing commander has to pull all those resources together in order to project air power. Is that accurate? Uh, no, not necessarily. So a VFA, let's say, and I'll use my previous experiences uh, with regular Hornets, although Super Hornets these days are about the same, I presume. But you might have a squadron of about 220 personnel. And so you'll have a single commander who's an 05 and an executive officer is an 05. If it's a single seat squadron, let's say, you'll have four department heads and that'll be safety, maintenance, operations, and administration. And then you might have another 10, let's say, junior officers, so 03s, and they will all be pilots. And of course, they'll have collateral duties. But a squadron in the Navy or Marine Corps will have its own maintenance as part of it. And so when VFA 94, let's say, which is where I did my department head tour, reports to Air Wing 11, well, the Air Wing commander knows that VFA 94 is showing up with, let's say, 10 aircraft, 15 pilots, all the maintenance folks they need, and all the administrative support they need, and even a couple ancillary activities like well, heads and beds and different things on the ship. And so when we chop to the Air Wing, we have the people we need to operate our squadron. But to your point, we don't bring people with us that will operate, let's say, the fuel systems on the carrier, nor when we are in Lamore, where that squadron is based, do we have folks that are running the, the fuel farm on the base. So the base takes care of it ashore, the ship takes care of it afloat. And that's one thing that's worth pointing out, Colin, is 
an aircraft carrier is really a marriage of two separate commands. You have the aircraft carrier itself, which is commanded by an 06 who's been through the nuclear training. And then you have the air wing commander who's also an 06. And these two are generally peers. And he brings or she brings the squadrons and all the personnel. So the ship might have a crew of about 3,000. The air wing might have about 2,000. And combined, you have over 5,000 folks that will go out when the ship is deploying with all the aircraft. But the ship is, if you will, providing a service to the air wing. And of course, the air wing needs to play well because it's their home for a little while. So they get involved with helping take care of things and battle damage, fighting fires, different things. Okay, so maybe a, a good way for people in the Air Force to wrap their minds around this is that the carrier is essentially a floating base with multiple wings, multiple commands, but there is ultimately one commander, one O six, who is ultimately responsible for the welfare and the operation of that carrier. Well, yes and no. So you'll only have one wing and we'll consider the wing to be the conglomeration, if you will, of, let's say, four VFA squadrons, so F-18s, one growler squadron these days uh, for electronic attack, maybe two helicopter squadrons, and then an E-2 squadron, so that's our version of your AWACS. And then these days are starting to add, I think, some UAVs, UASs, et cetera. But that will be the air wing, and that belongs to the air wing commander. Now, he shows up. And he is, like I said, equal rank to the captain. Now, he's not going to show up and say, hey, captain, you need to do this with your ship. They're going to play well together. And on the ship is both of their bosses, and that is a one-star admiral, sometimes a two-star, who is the strike group commander. So earlier, you talked about the different ships in the group. And it's not quite like it was in the Cold War days where you went out with this massive armada including battleships, which you said, which, by the way, are gone. I have to call you out. But, oh. <laughs> but these days, you'll have uh, destroyers. You'll have littoral combat ships. You'll have submarines. These days, we don't all necessarily go out as one giant team. We'll typically have at least one or two destroyers with the carrier, and then the rest you'll kind of leapfrog and pick up along the way, depending on where you're going. But the, the captain and the, the CAG, as the airline commander are called, are peers, and they're going to work well together, no doubt about it, because they're professionals. And ultimately, their boss has a nice stateroom and offices right there on the ship, and that is the one or two-star admiral who's in charge of everything, and he will, or she, direct different folks to do what they need to do, including what's called a Desron, a destroyer squadron, who's the third 06, and those three, by the way, are battling it out for uh, the number one position, which is a whole separate discussion, but uh, <laughs> that individual is in charge of those ships the picket ships if you will that are in the company of the carrier well it's it's so fascinating it, it obviously i don't know very much about it uh, you know to me the navy still has battleships obviously <laughs> <laughs> well we do in certain places on display museums if you will <laughs> uh, awesome okay yeah that's making a lot more sense to me i can picture in my head how these different squadrons are organized and how they move from training in their various missions moving out into the ocean and you know, being part of that carrier strike group, being tasked and employed by that combatant commander, it, it's starting to make a whole lot more sense to me. So getting a better understanding of how the Navy works, your role within it, move us now from your time being in that operational Navy setting to being an instructor into Top Gun. How did you get there? Did you apply for it? Was it assigned to you? Were you voluntold? And then what was your experience at Top Gun? 
Well, you're definitely not voluntold because they want people who have the drive and passion to be there because you work really, really hard, harder than any command or tour I ever served in. And so the way it works is when you are in your first fleet tour as a young lieutenant or O3 in our rank, then you are at the end of that looking for the next place to go. Now, it used to be that someone would be taken from a squadron to go to Top Gun on a temporary duty type assignment and then come back to that same squadron as if they just finished an exercise. And then they were expected to be the resident expert there. Now you leave your first tour and you go to Top Gun and you go through with the intent of either staying there as an instructor or staying there in Fallon, which is about an hour east drive from Reno, Nevada. And you might stay in other capacities in that parent organization. Or you might go to one of the satellite weapon schools I was telling you about in Lemoore or Oceana uh, in Norfolk, Virginia. Or you might go to the test community to help them. Or you might go to the training command to make sure that the instructors are uh, up, up on speed. So once you graduate, there's a lot of different places you can go. But believe it or not, most of them just stay right there in Fallon to serve as the uh, as instructors or in the air wing train, as I mentioned earlier, with the folks that come back to become air wing mission commanders. So you make known that you are interested in doing it, and then you submit an application, which is it explains what you have, what your experiences are. You definitely want endorsements from people. And then what the staff does, about 30-some-odd folks uh, at any one time on the Top Gun staff, Every once in a while, they'll have a manning meeting where they will review all the applicants. And they'll also talk to what we call BUPERS, the Bureau of Personnel, who are the folks in Millington, Tennessee, who say, hey, you can take Smith because he has enough time, but don't take Jones because he's too close to becoming an 04. And it's a bummer when that happens because we might want Jones more than Smith, but we want to make sure that we're not going to mess up somebody's career progression because when you're done with Top Gun, and by that I mean your tour there, uh, as in my case, well, you have to go give them a training officer tour. So remember I said a moment ago, you're going back. Well, now what you do is when you leave the Top Gun staff, and really any Top Gun graduate has to go through this at some point, then you are expected to go to a squadron, not necessarily the one you left three or four years ago, but a squadron that needs a training officer. And that's your job. You're taking the young pilots, the older pilots, you're standardizing, you're making sure you're proficient, you have a training syllabus that you have to make sure everybody's going through and you hold the high standard. And also when you deploy and you're going somewhere and maybe you're not doing training, you're still the resident expert wearing the patch. So you're the one who's saying, hey, the MiG-21s in this particular country don't have a helmet sight. Or, hey, the surface-to-air missiles here, we've been seeing them doing this particular tactic and I'm just making both of these up. So. That's your expertise. And then also, once you get into theater, a lot of times, depending on what your expertise area was, you might be pulled into different places. So if you were, as I was, the threat aircraft SME, they might ask you to come down to the E-2 squadron and say, hey, can you talk to us about the MiG-29? Or you might go in to the KAOC and you might say, hey, this is what we need to know about these MiG-23s or something. So there's a lot of use that you have, but once you leave Top Gun, your expertise begins to wane almost immediately like a food perishes because you're, you're just not there doing it day in and day out. Anyway, I submitted an application and I was lucky that a training officer who showed up to my squadron, VFA 86, was previously the training officer of Top Gun itself, which is the highest position you can percolate as a young lieutenant. 
uh, before you leave to be a train officer. And he was universally adored. And so when he got there, he called back. He's like, hey, guys, you should take Jello." And apparently that was good enough. So I, I thank him to this day for that. And, uh, and then I was accepted at that. Yeah, I think what you've described so far is very similar to how you get to be an instructor at the Air Force Weapons School. Obviously, I'm not an aviator. I'm not in a, a career field that needs to go to the weapons school. And so my experience with it is very limited. But it sounds very similar to the way that we do things in the Air Force in that you identify somewhat early on in your career that this is something that you want to work toward and you put together an application of some sort and that application is then reviewed by a board. It's it's not that you as a person get to go stand in front of these people and make the case that you want to be part of the weapon school or Top Gun or any other special career broadening opportunity, but it's your papers, it's your records. Those are the things that are going to be seen and that staff or that board will make a decision off of. Except that in your case, you demonstrated that the way to get the things that you want is to, to know someone who's done that thing and can provide that endorsement for you. Yes, I would say that is true. And he served as a wonderful mentor for me getting ready to go to Top Gun, not to say it made it easy. I struggled getting through the class as most pilots do. But yes, that, that is correct. But to your point, there are times and opportunities where Top Gun will sometimes go out on fleet visits because they're kind of somewhat isolated up there in Fallon. But a lot of times the fleet comes to them. So every once in a while, Air Wings will show up in Fallon as part of their training before they deploy, which is a whole separate discussion. And this was not the case, but let's say it was that I was in a squadron that went to Fallon and I knew I was getting ready to rotate in four to six months and I wanted to go to Top Gun. I could go over, of course, I'd want to ask ahead of time and hey, hey, can I come over? But I could go over and meet some bros, as they're called, regardless of gender, and say, hey, I'm Jello, really love to come here, excited about this, I want to do well. And what they really look for, honestly, more than anything, is your personality. Because if you're the best stick in the world, but you're a total jerk, that's harder to fix than the guy who's awesome, but just needs a little polishing on his flying. We can fix flying, it's hard to fix personality. And so that's what they look for. And thank goodness, because it took me a long time to get through some of the dogfighting uh, BFM flights, but they, they held out and I ended up uh, staying on Top Gun as, as an instructor. And I really enjoyed it. It was, like I said earlier, high watermark for me. Yeah. So walk us through what made Top Gun that high watermark for you. What were some of the really rewarding experiences, things that you're able to do that set Top Gun at, you know, up so high on your top experiences? Well, there's so many things. One is, uh, of course, we can't deny there is some folklore with Top Gun as an institution, both the way it was forged in fire from failures in Vietnam and how well it uh, was received right away and the results that it had. Of course, the movie adds to that as well. But honestly, they just have a culture that is unlike any that I've seen anywhere else. And that is why so many of them go on to do so well later, both in the military and outside, and that you start to see now various activities in the civilian sector trying to capitalize on being Top Gun instructors. And even I myself have written a couple blogs, if you will, on my platforms about what, what is the secret sauce. And it really is just that they have this culture of high performance, dedication, and no BS, really. I mean, when you go there, you don't go there thinking this is going to be a sit back, cush job. You work 12-hour days is a short day. 
five, six days a week is normal and sometimes late nights. And, and you just know that. And particularly for family people, that can be hard. But if, if the guys don't tell their spouses ahead of time, then you do see some some challenges there. But usually the the spouses, they all rally and they, they understand it. Plus in Fallon, there's not much else to do, frankly. So they all hang out together anyway. But it is just a culture of, I want to be the absolute best that I can possibly be. And so you go through what's called a murder board process, and it's aptly named because you'll do a series of, let's say, eight practice lectures with other instructors before you go to your murder board, which is the whole cadre, and that has to be passed before you'll ever give it to a student. And they will eradicate from your soul any um, ah, you know, what about dude, you know, any tick that you have, they will get it out of you in the murder board process. They'll use coarse grit sandpaper to do it and it hurts, but they will make you excellent at body language, eye contact, no ums and ahs, no filler, just even the way you hold the pointer to point to something. You're not allowed to peek at what you're presenting. You have to give it all from memory. It is polished and it's impressive. And I wrote about one time, this is a true story. I was sitting as a student in a lecture from a gentleman who went on to be a general in the Marine Corps, and he had just murderboarded the day before. So that is as good as you will ever get. You're still good after that, but you're not quite as good as the day after your murderboard. And the idea is you want to be so polished that there's no distractions. You're not picking your nose. You're not fiddling with your watch. You're not doing anything. You're presenting the material. But as I mentioned in this article, it had the opposite effect. He was so perfect. I sat there watching thinking, when's this guy going to make a mistake? And I wasn't learning anything he was saying, which is my own fault. But I thought, this dude is a machine. And the second thing it did for me is I said, oh, crud, I can't do this. I made a mistake. (laughs) And lo and behold, six months later, I gave a three and a half hour lecture in four parts with I forget how many hundreds of slides. And I won't say it was flawless, but Colin, I, I basically, I mean, I passed, obviously, but I, by my standards, I nailed it. And it's an amazing feeling to know what the human body and brain is capable of. And if I could do it, anyone could do it. I really believe that because I'm not that special. But there is a culture there where that's what they expect and you rise to it. And same with the flying. You are just, you're that good because when you go out, you debrief every little mistake. And if you need to, you got and do it again until you get it right. Yeah. I love what you're describing here, the, the culture there that just emphasizes, if not perfection, the goal of trying to reach as close to it as you possibly can. And it's infectious across everybody that's there. Everybody takes complete ownership of that standard and makes no excuse. They don't try to deviate from that at all. And so the entire organization is able to continuously rise to that higher and higher level. It's too bad I can't ever be a part of it, but I would love to be. Well, maybe you could go up and audit uh, an event sometime, but I would say it's not the perfection that's sought, it's the pursuit of perfection. And so when you go out, it's well known, there's no such thing as a perfect flight, but you don't come back and sugarcoat your mistakes. And that's the key. You go out, you say, hey, I'm going to try to do my best. I'm going to strive for perfect communications. I'm going to strive for perfect formation with my wingman. I'm going to try to do everything my best. And oh, look, something changed I hadn't expected. I'm going to do A. Turns out B was correct. You get back, you debrief it. And do you have to have a perfect flight to pass? No, of course not. But if you miss the obvious learning points of what you did wrong, then that's an issue. And so that becomes a big part 
of this whole thing is we want people that are going to go out and give it their best 100% every time and then come back and be able to say, this is where I messed up. And oh, by the way, this is where you messed up. And even if it's a senior ranking person, you do it in a tactful manner. You learn from it. And the idea is tomorrow you go out and you do that, whatever you messed up better and you make another mistake, but you keep pursuing it. And, and that's absolutely correct. Yeah. And that culture permeates not just into the, the briefing that, that you mentioned earlier, the one that the, the Marine gave or the three and a half hour one that you gave, but it carries over into operations itself. You know, just like you're describing, you go and practice a maneuver or some sort of tactic and you come back and you murderboard it just the same. Yeah, the debriefs. So you said earlier, right? Uh, a movie on reality would be awful. You're absolutely right. Yeah. We will sit and hash out. I'm not kidding you, Colin. We'll do the whole debrief of what happened. And then we'll play it a second time and look at actual like radar mechanics, as we call it in execution. Then we'll play it a third time. And by play it, what I mean is we have an actual recording of cartoon characters, what they're doing. It's called a tax range. And then, um, and then what we see on our radars. But also, we'll just sit and listen to the comm. And there's this rule that when a comm call is made, you have three seconds to correct it if it needs correcting. And if not, it's fair game. So you'll hear some call made, and I can't think of a good example suddenly, but if it's your call, you hit pause real quick and you say, okay, what I should have said was this code word or this other thing. And, and the idea is, again, it's just, I didn't say it. You knew what I meant. I could have said this. That'll make this even incrementally better next time. But we don't belabor it. We don't beat you down. You don't have to wear a scarlet letter that says calm brevity next time or something, but, <laughs> but you strive for it every single time. That's awesome. It, how do you maintain that level of intensity over the course of your time as a student and then as an instructor while you're there at Top Gun? You know, I think it's a mindset and it's a daily recommitment. So you remember the guy who got pinned in the rocks out in Utah for five days? And then it's right on the tip of my tongue. It'll probably come later and I'll blurt it out when it's uh, Aaron Ralston, maybe. Anyway, think about what he had to do to survive. Ultimately, after five days of exhaustion and exposure and dehydration and delirium, the dude ends up cutting off his own arm with a rusty, dull pocket knife. Then it's not over. Then he's got to rappel down something like 65 feet and then hike seven or eight miles out. And when you think to yourself, man, how could you do that? Well, that was what was required for survival. And the dude survived and now he's happily married and he talks about it. And he still goes out in the wilderness. Of course, he gives everyone a plan where he's going, flight plan, if you will. So I think it's hard for you and I to sit here and be of the frame of mind of a Top Gun instructor because there's no context, right? When you're going to the Top Gun, there's all this hype leading up to it. Oh my gosh, dude, congratulations. It's going to be amazing. There's the long talks with your spouse. There's the talks with the people that used to be there, your training officers. There's studying, there's reading ahead. There's all these things. So you're, you're hyped up for the big game. And so once you're there, there's just this expectation of this is what it's going to be. This is day in, day out. I've got to bring my A game. I can't be moping about a bad flight I had a week ago. I can't be upset about a sick kid. And don't get me wrong, kids get sick but you have to compartmentalize. And sometimes the staff is in tune enough to say, hey, bro, what's going on? I got a sick kid. Hey, dude, go. I got this. You know, go home. Take care of that. And they do. It's a family. And they know all that. But I think day in and day out, you just renew yourself in whatever method works. Exercise is a good one. For me, I also like to eat as healthy as I can generally. And you sit around these, these guys are your friends. So you, you have some levity too once in a while. And 
just every day you just try to be the kind of person who, who brings their A game. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's not everybody. Not everybody thrives at Top Gun, but most of them do. The selection process usually works pretty well. And when you leave there, it's almost a bit of a letdown because after playing in the lit majors for so long, it's like going down, not to denigrate the fleet, but it's like going down to AAA or even <laughs> college ball. All of a sudden, you're used to this super pace, super people say what they're going to do and they do it and on time and it's well done and you get back and it's the real world and all of a sudden you realize a lot of people don't care, a lot of people forget things, a lot of people don't behave or act the way you did there and and it takes a little bit of you know, you almost need a halfway house when you come out of town because the rest of the world is not like that place. And you've described so many important things that could be used elsewhere in the fleet, in the Air Force, in the civilian world, taking ownership of your development, being surrounded by high-performing individuals, providing cover for other people when the occasions arise, having the open and honest conversations with spouses, with your colleagues, so many things that go into uh, the development of a high-performing organization. But just as you said, not everything that we're going to be involved in, uh, in the military specifically, or just the world in general, are going to approach that level of performance. But you know what? That's okay. I was about to say, nor should it, because you don't want every game to be the Super Bowl. You need to have some regularity. And certainly for the families, they couldn't tolerate that. And and you always hear about folks that are workaholics and maybe they bring that same attitude to no matter what they're doing, whether they're at Top Gun or somewhere else. But no, I'm completely with you. I am the first to put my feet up uh, and when it's time to do that. But man, when it's time to knuckle down, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'll work hard. I'll put my head down and get it done. And that's why I enjoy the time, the downtime so much, because I know that when I need to, I can I can get it done. And you're aware of that. You're hustling on this podcast and making it a success. And once in a while, I hope you get a chance to take a break. But it, it takes hard work if you want that performance. And not everybody's able, but for the ones who do, they get the perks of it. Well, awesome, Jello. If you wouldn't mind, you take a, a couple minutes to give some major takeaways from your experience uh, as a Top Gun instructor, things that you took back into the fleet that would be useful for our audience. Well, I think everyone's experiences will vary and not everyone goes to Top Gun. So you always need to look for the nuggets that you can take from any experience, I think. But for me, from my Top Gun experience, two things come immediately to mind, Colin. One is that as Top Gun staff, all very high performing type A personalities, you can imagine that staff meetings could get a bit rowdy at times. And it was professional, don't get me wrong. But when we are responsible for providing tactical recommendations to the fleet, there can be a lot of discussion and it can get heated at times about should we recommend this particular thing or not. And what I learned from that is you can argue till you're blue in the face with somebody that you're right and they're wrong and they'll say the exact same thing. And for me, being particularly half Italian growing (laughs) up, I, I always carried that around with me. But what I learned at Top Gun was when you walk out of that staff meeting, you've got to put that aside and move on to the next thing. And a lot of times you might go toe to toe with someone about a tactical recommendation and you walk out and the guy will say, Hey, you want to go to the club and get a cold one? Like, sure. 
and you go and, you know, you talk about something else or you might keep talking about it if it's unclassified or whatever you can say. But I learned that it's okay to disagree. In fact, it's okay to even get in arguments with people, but that you need to be professional. There's a way to do it and you can't harbor grudges or carry around a bunch of baggage over it. You, you, you just move on. And so for me, that was the place where I'm sure all your listeners say, I figured that out in third grade, Jello, what's wrong with you? Well, for me, it took longer. And that's for me, that was one takeaway. The other was when you are surrounded by professionals, you can't help but learn from them. Now, it should be a conscious effort anyway, I think. But when you are at Top Gun and you hear preboards from someone else and then their murder board, think about it. You get to hear every other subject at least twice. And I was there for almost three years. So I heard some subjects that would get turned over from an old bro to a new bro, as it's called. And so I'd hear it again. And so when I left Top Gun, I knew things that weren't my subject matter expertise that I knew as well or better than anyone other than the SME, I feel like. And so I remember one time when I got to my training officer tour, as I described earlier in Air Wing 11, I went down and gave a chalk talk to, I think it was the E2 squadron, but I don't remember now. But it was something that was not my subject matter. And I stood there and talked and was drawing things on the board. And I remember right before I turned around to face the ready room, I looked at everything I had drawn and all the things I talked about. And I just had this flash moment of, wow, I didn't realize I knew that that well. (laughs) And I could articulate it that clearly. And it was just this moment of when you are surrounded by people, you can't help but learn from them. And that's a good thing. And I certainly do. I, I enjoy that part of my Top Gun experience because I I didn't claim to be the expert in those things, but they wanted me to talk about it and I was able to. And I really took that as a valuable side benefit of being there. Yeah. I love both those things that you're describing here. If I were to summarize them and you can correct me or add detail if you want, it sounds like continuous professionalism despite disagreements or the environment and continuous learning from everybody that's around you. Yeah, I think that's a really succinct way to put it, Colin. Awesome. Yeah, great nuggets there, as you said, for our audience. And I really appreciate you sharing your expertise uh, from your time as a Top Gun instructor. All right, let's shift gears a little bit and move things into a little bit more of an Air Force context. Specifically, what has been your experience working with the Air Force? And what are some things that you think Air Force officers need to know about the Navy and naval aviation? Sure. Well, while I was on the Top Gun staff, we actually had two Air Force pilots with us on exchange, if you will, an F-16 pilot and an F-15. And they don't always do that, but I'm glad they did because it was a great opportunity, I think, for them as patch wearers to see how the Navy does business and certainly for us to get their inputs. Now, when I was on the Top Gun staff in the early 2000s, there was a rather large divide between the way the fighter community in the Air Force did business and the way the Navy did business. And we ended up changing tactics, and I won't go into too much detail on that, but in the mid-2000s, we ended up taking more of an Air Force approach, and I think that's better aligned to what we do. And so I've been a little bit out of it since then, and I don't know how much overlap there is in tactics anymore, but certainly I think it's good that squadrons go and operate with each other in training, whether it's Navy squadrons going to a red flag or up to Northern Edge or Air Force squadrons coming out and just sitting down and doing some missions with Navy folks. But I think there's goodness there. I would say 
Overall, I find Air Force pilots to be every bit as professional as Navy pilots. Not, not to say that we hold the bar. In other words, I'm just saying we all are on that same plane. And I think that's just a function of some people like me when I was younger just said, hey, I just want to be in the Navy. I don't have anything against the Air Force. I was a signature away from being a Marine before I picked up the two-year ROTC. And I just realized that's not me. I, I respect those guys, but I just don't see myself as one. And so I think anyone probably who could be a Navy pilot could be an Air Force pilot or vice versa. And so I have no qualms with any of the Air Force folks I've ever interacted with. The one thing I would say the young Air Force officer needs to understand about the Navy, particularly, let's say, going back to our earlier example about squadrons all in the same AOR, is that while a squadron, I presume, I've never been land-based, believe it or not, other than in training, but I presume they'll have a certain window of when they operate, but because they're ashore, they can pretty much do something almost all the time. Well, the Navy is not that way. When that aircraft carrier pulls in, it has about a 12-hour window that it can provide forces. And after that, it needs to rest because they don't have like a port and starboard or blue and gold, whatever you want to call it, team that runs the flight deck. That's a certain number of individuals and they run the deck. And when it's over, they need to rest and eat and do the other things they need to do. And so for a 12-hour fly day, and it can go longer, and certainly you could fly for a lot longer for a short period of time, but then you're going to need a lot more rest. But let's say it's a 12-hour fly day. Well, you've got folks up on the flight deck an hour prior getting everything ready, checking the catapults and the arresting gear and all the different things. Of course, you've got to get the aircraft fueled and armed. And then at the end of the day, if when I land, let's say I'm the last aircraft to land, well, I've got to get parked. I've got to get shut down. I've got to get that aircraft turned around. And then, oh, by the way, all night long, you're running aircraft to different positions on the flight deck or moving some down into the hangar or up on the flight deck. And that requires elevator runs. So they're never closed anyway. It's like 7-Eleven. But as far as the operations go, I would say an Air Force person who's not aware of that might say, hey, well, why can't the carrier just do a window from 3 to 6 a.m. and then pick back up later in the day? Well, it's rest, it's operations. We can do a graveyard shift, but we can't really bounce back and forth too much because of the rest that folks need. So I would say that was the one thing that I remember people seem to be surprised about. Yeah, so the Air Force officer that's involved in planning joint operations with the Navy needs to take those kinds of things into consideration that the carrier and the, and would you say the carrier strike group as a whole has that window within which that they're actually able to carry out operations? Well, I'm going to take a guess at this because it's not my area of expertise. But again, if you look at the carrier strike group, quote unquote, as it's called these days, it's a mix and match of aircraft and platforms, ships, submarines, whatever. And sometimes when the carrier shows up, it'll just adopt whatever destroyer, let's say, is there or cruiser. And then when it outchops, it might leave that cruiser behind and go pick up a different cruiser. So I, I can't really answer that too well, except to say that if the planner was relying on, let's say, tomahawks or cruise missiles from a picket ship or destroyer, cruiser, whatever, that I would think those could be launched at different hours when the air wing itself is not. I would think it's not just when the air wing is flying. And if anything, it's probably better when it's not, so you don't have to deconflict. But I'm not the authority on that. Okay, no problem. 
what are some other things that you feel like Air Force officers need to know about the Navy? And specifically, there's the operational piece, which they can get through on-the-job training, interfacing with them in various assignments. But what would you say about, like, on the cultural side, the things that the Navy values within its officers and just in general? Yeah, I I don't think it's that different. I, I understand that the Navy's been around for 200 and whatever it is, 30-ish years, and the Air Force a little bit less than that, but of course they were involved with the Army before. I would say it seems to me the Navy has a deeper tradition on the way we do things and why we do things, particularly with operating ships at sea. I mean, that's obviously just about as old as humans. I always perceive as an outsider as the Air Force kind of taking the opposite approach of, hey, we're going to be real modern and technologically up to date and we're not too worried about tradition. I understand you guys have some tradition, but to me, the Navy seems really steeped in it. I don't know really how else to answer that other than a Navy pilot on a ship will have to do other things. Uh, and, and that's not to say that Air Force pilots don't. I'm just not aware. But so when I was a junior officer in my squadron, I might go out and fly a mission and be available to the KAOC again. But when I get back, I may have to write the flight schedule or I might need to go check on the line division, which is our plane captains or crew chiefs for you guys. I might be in charge of the ordnance branch. I might have other responsibilities. Uh, Later, when I was a department head, one of the things they wanted me to do was to actually earn qualifications for driving the ship, believe it or not. And specifically, while we were doing underway replenishments, where the ship would be alongside an oiler or another supply ship, and they would want us to drive the ship because they feel like, hey, if you're a naval officer, even though you're a pilot, you should be a naval officer. So you should know how to do this. And of course, the idea being that if you get those qualifications, it makes you more valuable or selectable later for other higher operations. But just getting back to, I think another thing that's important from the point of view of the 12 hour day, roughly that I was mentioning, is that it also depends on what operations we're doing. So in other words, if we are just doing, I know the terminology has changed now, but back when I was a young pilot, it was Southern Watch and then I guess it was uh, Iraqi Freedom. Well, if we're doing patrol or X-CAST type missions where we may or may not drop, well, then think about an F-16, let's say, can come back with everything it took off with and just flare the landing, and it's fine. Well, an F-18 that's fully loaded, when it comes back, it can only land on a carrier at a certain weight. And so it either is going to need to be super low on fuel, which is an issue, or it may have to jettison some of those weapons, or it just in the first place won't take off with all those weapons. And so that is another thing that is a difference, not necessarily culturally, but it's just a limitation of the ship. And then there might be certain weapons that are on the ship, but that we just can't get to because they are buried down in our weapons magazines and the gunners and ordnance personnel, the OHO, as he's called, ordnance handling officer, he might just say, no, you're not getting a 500-pound this. You're going to get a 500-pound that because those are all stuck in the back. You know, if you've, if you've got a messy garage, you're familiar, right? Hey, I can't get to this because it's <laughs> behind 10 other boxes. But it, that's a similar issue or limitation as well. Other than that, though, I would say in the, in the few times where I've had an opportunity to have some liberty or have some fun with Air Force folks. I say we do things maybe slightly differently, but it's the same. In other words, hey, you call it six, I call it half dozen, but we're talking about the same stuff. So whether it's the way call signs are given or the 
times at officers clubs, uh, the different things you call it or the different things you do. Uh, just recently on my show, we had a F-15 Strike Eagle Wizzo talk about, was it Manchester? I think it was some game <laughs> I'd never heard of, but I thought, okay, that sounds like something we would do. Right. So I think there's just some, some differences. And I, I think for the Air Force guys, for example, who came to Top Gun, they, they probably looked with right, raised eyebrows here or there, but once they kind of figured out, oh, that's like this and okay, that's like that, really not that different. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it sounds like you just speak a different dialect, same language, just call things by a different name, but deep down inside, we're all cut from the same cloth. Yeah, I do agree with that, Colin. But I do want to tell you real quickly, even though you didn't ask, I get on my show the question all the time, well, who's better? Navy pilots or Air Force pilots? And of course, I'm not going to answer that because I don't want to be parochial. But what I, what I do say, and I think there's some, some value to this, is that Navy pilots have to spend a lot of time getting ready to go to the ship. So when we are going to deploy for the first time in a while, we might spend a full week or two just doing field carrier landing practices where we're just in the pattern at the airfield flying repetitive landings using the same lens that we'll see out at the ship. And there's a little part of the runway that's painted like the ship. And we do that over and over and over. And, and so the one thing I tell people when they ask that is landing on a carrier is not easy, especially at night, especially if the ship is pitching with, because of the sea, especially in inclement weather. It's not easy. And we spend a ton of time doing that. So maybe if I really wanted to try to say that one is one way and one is the other, you might argue that the Navy pilots, because they have to have those fine-tuned skills to land on the ship, might be arguably, again, I'm not making this assertion, but you could make the case that the touch stick and rudder piloting skills might be a little better because they have to be for landing on the ship. But, and I'm always quick to make this point, that week or two that I just mentioned that we're spending doing nothing but landing practice, guess what the Air Force is out doing? They're out doing tactics. And so they don't have to worry about it. When you come back, your runway is still there. It looks the same. It might be dark, but it's probably not moving <laughs> unless there's an earthquake, right? So, uh, and, it, and it's not 500 feet long. It's 12,000 feet long. And so landing for you guys usually is just an administrative, yeah, just don't screw it up. And it's not a problem most of the time. So while we're doing field landing practice and getting those fine motor skills down for stick and rudder, you guys are out doing the tactics and, and working on employment and timelines and all those things that you do that we also do. And I think we do well, but you don't have to spend the time doing the landings; You get to spend it doing the tactics. So that's one point I make that is a distinction, I think, between Air Force and Navy. Yeah, I wasn't going to ask that particular question because I am not one to pit one service against the other. I believe deeply that we need all of us. We need each branch with its own particular focus on the various domains of operations and the approach that they bring to warfighting. And then at the very end of the day, we operate jointly in almost everything that we do. And so it doesn't serve any of us to fire up a competition when we all have the same idea in mind. Yes, friendly banter, the you know, sibling rivalry is, is good and healthy for the ongoing relationship, but I will never be one to say that the Air Force is better than the Navy, is better than the Army, is better than the Marines, Coast Guard, or now the Space Force. <laughs> 
No, I totally agree, Colin. And and I was going to say it if you didn't, but you did. And that is, it's okay to have a little good-natured ribbing. You can poke some fun, but at the end of the day, we're all on the same team and we get it done. And, and, and that's what I've experienced. You know, the Air Force guys that were on the staff, good on them. They were greatly outnumbered, but they would tell us how screwed up we were when it was appropriate to and have some fun with it. And we would do the same. But at the end of the day, they added a lot of value and I hope they took some from being at Top Gun. And same thing for everywhere I've ever interacted with Air Force brothers and sisters. I totally agree. Great. That's awesome, Jello. Well, I have a couple more questions for you. Sure. This has been a fantastic interview. Lots of great information that you have been able to share with our audience. If people are interested in picking your brain on being a, a Navy fighter pilot or the Navy in general, what would be the best way for our audience to get in touch with you? Well, you can head over to fighterpilotpodcast.com and check out our show. We're on all the different social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. And you can always just shoot me an email. There is a questions email you can find very easily on the website. And I'll respond to that generally. I, I do most days answer folks' questions. But you can also just email me directly if you want. It's vincent at bvrpro.com. So that's vincent at bravo victor romeo papa romeo oscar.com. And uh, BVR Pro is BVR Productions. That's our parent media company we've created for the show. And yeah, I, I answer questions for folks all the time. We also have a couple Facebook groups where people can join and just hang out and chat. One's called The Ready Room. Another is called The Pit. And Colin, these are guys that, uh, and gals that would probably be right up your alley. They're young people that are hoping to become naval aviators or Air Force aviators, Marine aviators. We've got a couple Army folks on there as well. And it's just a forum for them to sit and help each other. It's not something that the Fighter Pilot Podcast necessarily uh, gives out information. They ask each other questions, and it's great. But yeah, we just try to create a collaborative environment. We believe that the rising tide lifts all the ships. And so it's a lot of fun. And for me, after 25 years of serving, I couldn't just walk away. So it's a way to continue serving, and I really do enjoy it. And there's enthusiastic young people out there that are glad for the information. And I know I would have back when I was starting my journey. Yeah. I personally am very grateful for the platform that you've created. I've learned a ton about my own service through your podcast, especially over the last year where you were doing all of those explanations of, of the various different aircraft, especially ones that are currently operating within the Air Force. I mean, there are lots of things that I just didn't know about these aircraft that I am supporting. So I think your podcast just in general is a fantastic resource about aviation, both on the Navy and the Air Force, but all other services. And the guests that you bring onto your show are really fantastic. They bring such a, a great amount of knowledge, a lot of really wonderful stories that paint a wonderful picture about what it is that we do in the military, actually in the cockpit or being peripheral to the flying mission itself. Right. And that latter thing I need to do a little more of, but I appreciate that, Colin. That was the goal in the beginning was simply to share this amazing world with people. And I hear from a lot of folks that wanted to do it, but couldn't because they just didn't have the eyes or something else got in the way. And then, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the young folks that want to do it. And it's a very vibrant audience and we have a good time. So yeah, people should come on over. Great. Thanks, Jello. One final question for you. What does it mean to be an officer? What does it mean to be an officer? I think what it means to be an officer, particularly in the Navy, which is my experience, is that you have special trust and privilege to do certain things that not everybody gets to do. 
So you are a higher rank, which means you have those privileges, like I said, but that doesn't mean you are up on a pedestal. I think you also need to be a role model and a leader for those who make it possible for you to do what you do. So today we talked a little bit about flying. We talked about the ships. We talked about a lot of different things. And Colin, all those are great, but anyone who's seen the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds, they think, oh, cool, look at those six pilots. They don't think about the hundreds of people that make those F-16s fly. And as an officer, one of those pilots, sure, you're going to go out and you're going to demonstrate the ability to fly in close formation and to have that trust and privilege to do that. But when you land, you need to be able to make sure that the folks that make those airplanes work have what they need. You remove obstacles, you give them the tools they need and that you have their best interests at heart and not just selfishly so you can go fly, but because it's the right thing to do for a fellow human being. So for me, an officer is about all those things. It's about serving. It's about looking up and looking down and looking all around. And I'm just so glad I had the opportunity to do it. I still have to remind myself once in a while that I flew aircraft for almost 25 years in the service of our military. And I'm so honored to have done that. And if they things get ugly and they call me back up, well, I'll go get a haircut and, and go report because um, it's in your blood. And I really did enjoy it. Awesome. Thanks, Jello. You're welcome, Colin. Reed, don't you think that Jello is just such a fantastic speaker and so eloquent and you can see how his time at Top Gun has just refined him up to this point and made him just the, the perfect person to talk to about naval aviation and what and what they bring to the fight yeah totally agree Top Gun is not weapon school and he he talks about that right how they're they're sort of analogous but sort of not they're different and the same all at the same time but it definitely is a place similar to our weapon school where there's a culture of excellence and people pushing themselves to be the best they can. And he talked a lot about that. And, and it, it made me think back to our episode with Wham and where he talked about the weapon school. So yeah, absolutely. He's been through the fires. He's done this a time or two. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah. The, that culture of excellence is the, one of the things that I wanted to discuss out of this episode is how important it is to have that type of organization. And I talked about that in our episode with Wham last week about how much I personally would want to be part of that at the Air Force Weapons School because of the, the skills and the knowledge that I personally would gain from it, as well as opening it up to uh, other career fields would allow us to be part of that culture of excellence and benefit the Air Force like that. But Jello and I talked in this interview about how that can't exist everywhere all the time. That he used the analogy of you don't want every football game to be the Super Bowl because that's unsustainable, right? Yeah, but at the same time, it's most often in those types of environments that a lot of real growth can happen. And I think that's kind of what you're getting to, right? Is we all need those settings. We all want them because that's where the real growth can happen. And so I, like you, wanted to bring up this point, you know, this, this idea of seeking out and finding ways to be involved in opportunities where you know you're going to get tested. Those are going to come up for our audience members. They're going to happen. Don't run from them. Maybe even seek them out. Find opportunities to really test your mettle, to really figure out where your limits are and then push beyond them so that you can develop 
into the airman that you want to be and what and what we need of you. Yeah, and I don't even want to equivocate on it. I want to encourage everybody to actually deliberately, purposefully seek out these opportunities to do hard things. Because just as you said, that is where growth happens. If you find yourself comfortable the majority of the time, you need to stop that and go find something that's difficult. And that is where you're going to be refined. And this could be any number of things. It could be physical by pushing yourself to go lift heavier weights or run further distances or faster. Or it could be mental by reading a difficult book or maybe being part of something like Toastmasters and refining your ability to speak, right? There are so many different things that this could apply to, but the common thread through all of them is that they are difficult, that they are hard, and that you are taking yourself out of your comfort zone voluntarily to push yourself to become that much better on that higher level, right? Yeah. And it is something I feel as a member of the profession of arms, we get a little bit more opportunity to do that culturally and structurally. Those are built in a little bit to to our service than in the civilian world, I think. At least that's the way it appears to me. Um, It's something that was attractive to me about serving. But then the last thing I want to say on that is the true leader is not the person who does that for themselves, but is able to find a way to push others to do that too, to do that along with them, right? To find ways to create a culture of excellence, a culture of doing hard things among a bigger group of people. Now, I'm not saying that it has to be an entire squadron or a flight even, but if you can find that small group of guys and gals that are willing to push themselves to that next level, then that's really where you're going to hone those more important leadership skills. Yeah, love it. The next thing that I wanted to discuss was the importance of working with our joint partners. Now, I don't know if you noticed, Reed, I'm sure you did, but I want to draw your attention to just the way that Jello and using him as a representative of the Navy as a whole, the way that they speak, that you can listen to them, you can listen to somebody like Jello from our military background, we have an idea, we know what he's saying, but at the same time, there are certain words or phrases that he uses that were just like, did we really understand that? Or it's just different enough that I have to question myself, did I really understand what he said? Yeah, you know what it felt like, and that's good enough for basic communication, but what did it actually mean? Yeah, I I had that same experience. I mean, it's like the difference between American English and British English or Australian, right? That I understand the grammar. I understand that the vast majority of the words are the same, but there's just enough of a difference that I find myself second guessing. Just to pull some of those words out, such as when he talks about being underway, that's equivalent to our deployments or being moored having a boat moored at, at port, that's similar to us being home station, or that a VFA is a squadron. Bupers is the same as AFPC, the Air Force Personnel Center, or collateral duties are the same as additional duties. And through all this, just want to highlight the importance of being able to speak joint. And that's 
why we do joint assignments. That's why we send officers to go, like he mentioned, have Air Force officers at Top Gun so that they can get that type of experience or working in the Pentagon with the other services. What has been your experience with that, Reed? Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. It is a different language, but the same. And being able to understand your joint brothers and sisters matters a lot. The current UDM I'm in is a joint organization, and but there isn't enough of our service-specific stuff. We're already doing work that is unique enough that that has its own language in and of itself at the agency I work for. So you combine those three things, right? Our service identity, our IC, intelligence community identity, and then the work we're doing, it, it can get pretty difficult to understand what, what's going on. But yeah, we don't fight as our own services. That's not how it works. And so being able to understand and speak that language is crucial. And it's something that we haven't talked a lot about on this podcast, but it's definitely going to be more important, especially the farther you get along in your career. Yeah, definitely something we want to discuss a little bit more often going forward is how you operate in the joint environment. And that's actually where I wanted to go next with this is knowing that you've worked at the the KAOC, the Combined Air Operations Center before, to have you read, speak to that experience because it came up multiple times in the interview with Jello. And I want to hear from you your experience of what it's like integrating the various aviation components from the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, the Marines in the operational environment. Because we kept using acronyms like CFAC and ATO and KAOC that I feel like our audience would benefit from if, if you could flesh that out for us. Yeah, sure. So I'll give a super brief, very top level discussion about how we present forces to go to war and how the air component is all pulled together in that arena and then how the ATO, the air tasking order drives all operations. So Basically, anytime there's a conflict popping off somewhere in the world, let's just pit central, you know, CENTCOM, that area of responsibility. The geographic combatant commander is given the responsibility and the authority to conduct operations in that area. And that person becomes a joint force commander. They're given the responsibility of conducting the war. They then designate different component commanders, and that's the CFAC. The combined Force Air Component Commander. So any air forces that are available and delegated to go conduct this war are given to the JFAC or CFAC joint, if it's just U.S., CFAC if it's combined with other nations. And that's another thing we haven't even talked about, right? So not only jointness and that language, but when we were conducting operations in Iraq and Syria in 2014, there were some 86 nations that were part of that. And the CFAC was a three-star general who sat upstairs in my building, who was in charge of putting that all together. So you've got different component commanders. You've got the land component commander who's in charge of all the land forces and land movements and land operations, the maritime component commander, and the air component commander. And they have to coordinate all of their efforts. For the air, all of that coordination is conducted and planned at the Air Operations Center. 
And that's where they produce the air tasking order. And that air tasking order is what gets proverbially pinned to the wall every morning. Hey folks, this is what we're going to do today. We're going to take off at this time. We're going to go to this place. We're going to do this thing. We're going to refuel here. We're going to have this standard conventional loadout. We're going to get back at this time. That's what the ATO is. And that's what the Air Operations Center does is plans all that. So for our Navy brethren, as soon as they take off from the carrier, if they're not doing missions to support the maritime component commander, they are chopped over to the air component commander to go do air things on the air tasking order. And so, yeah, so one day you may have F-16s providing defensive counter air over a location. And the next day it may be F-18s from the Navy. And being able to communicate with the pilots on both of those different aircraft and still get the mission done is essential. And it's one of those, you know, this is game time is not a good time to learn how this works. And so that's why, you know, he spoke air, ATO, CFAC well, because he's a flyer and he's more likely to get chopped over to the Air Force than someone who drives a surface vessel. And so for those of us that are in the Air Force, how often are we going to get assigned to the Navy or the Marines or the Army? That all depends on what we do for our TACPs. They probably speak better Army than an Intel person who's never worked for the Army. And, and so each of us have to find our responsibility in our, our lane, if you will, and, and how to, to learn how to speak that joint language because it becomes incredibly important when we fight. Yeah. Such a critical skill to be able to have, much like speaking a, a second language can benefit you as you navigate this world and travel and interface with people from different backgrounds, different cultures. The same is true within the family of the Air Force. Yes, we are all brothers and sisters. Yes, we have our sibling rivalries. But at the end of the day, we all need to be able to be on the same page to work together to achieve strategic objectives for our country, right? Yeah, totally agreed. Well, anything else that you want to highlight out of this interview, Reed? Yeah, the last thing I wanted to talk about was when he was discussing how manning decisions were made at Top Gun, he really focused on how important your reputation was and the central role it played in your selection or non-selection for Top Gun. I want to impress upon our audience how very real that is. And it starts immediately. The people that you meet at ROTC and your detachment, your flight mates at OTS, your class at USAFA, you will begin to create and establish a reputation for good and for ill. And it will follow you. And it will matter. People will make decisions about what you can or can't do based on your reputation in your community. And like he mentioned that sometimes people just weren't the right fit. That type of decision will be made for you. Now, maybe you aren't the right fit. Maybe you are very qualified, but the job requires a different personality or whatever you want to say. Just don't self-eliminate by being a jerk. I think, I think that's what I wanted to point out. It matters. I'm not saying to compromise your integrity 
or to do anything illegal. I'm not saying to do that. Don't go along to get along. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. Just be a decent person because you're going to run into these people. If you deliberately choose to burn a bridge, just know you're going to have to walk across it someday. It's going to happen. I have run into people that I was not as kind of a person as I should have been, and I've regretted that. I have made that mistake. Don't make that mistake. Your reputation matters, and it starts day one. Yeah, your personality and your character are a huge part of that reputation, but let's also not forget that your competence, your ability to perform in your assigned responsibility within your career field is also part of that reputation and a hu uh, a hugely important piece of it too. Yeah, totally agree. And it all gets rolled up into making this who you are picture, right? The way you act, the way you behave, the way you treat others, the way you dress, where you walk, I, you name it, right? You want to be that loud goof off who looks like a smash bag of donuts in uniform? Y your rep is starting to be built. And someday, I hope for our audience, they don't look back and go, you know, maybe I shouldn't have yelled at that person. Maybe that wasn't the best move or whatever it is, right? Just, and that doesn't mean don't be bold. That doesn't mean don't stand up for the right thing. That doesn't mean be decisive. It, it just means be aware that your reputation matters and it starts building from the day you put the uniform on. Yeah, and your reputation as you're highlighting here takes part in your selection for various different opportunities. Just like when you are coming into the Air Force and you're earning that commission, your moral character, your personality, your competence is measured there. And we, the gatekeepers, we who are already members of the profession of arms get to be the ones who make the decision on who gets in who and who doesn't. That continues for these other select opportunities, such as Top Gun in the Navy or the Weapons School in the Air Force, or other special opportunities, such as internships like what you're taking part in, Reed, or going to do developmental education, anything that is considered competitive, and there's a selection process to it, there are the written rules for it. There's the policy for it, right? And we've talked about that, how your paper records are the thing that are going to meet the board. You don't personally get to be there to plead your case, but they'll judge you off your records. But oh, by the way, the unwritten rule here is that they're going to judge you by your reputation too. If they really need to, those people that are on the selection board, hey, they know other people too who probably know you. And they're going to start making some phone calls. Yeah, the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon is really, really easy in the Air Force. <laughs> I'm not joking. It is super easy to find. I don't even know that it's seven degrees. I, three? <laughs> right? I, maybe four. But yeah, it's very easy. And we need to be clear, right? There are certain legal rules about making decisions based off of reputation, right? For things like promotion. As long as you meet the requirement it's actually against the rules for them to say, yeah, but I just don't like this person. But we're talking the, I'm going to hire an executive officer and I'm an 06, right? There is no AFI on how to hire your exec. So what's going to play a role? Your reputation. Are you someone that can be excellent? Are you someone that can, they can get along with? Are you someone that can be trusted? Those are not things that are found on your OPR. They can't be written down on your 
career brief that says this person is trustworthy. That comes from the relationships you've got with other people. And so those are the types of things. And those types of opportunities can play a big role in your development as an officer and the opportunities you have in the future. Well, thanks for highlighting that for us, Reed. And a big thanks to Jello for providing so many important lessons that we can learn here about naval aviation and our Navy brothers and sisters. We really appreciate his personal and professional experience. We look forward to further conversations with Jello in the future. And once again, we want to encourage everybody in our audience to go check out the Fighter Pilot Podcast. As we mentioned before, you will be a better airman in the Air Force by listening to that show. Can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, the interviews he's got with operators who have flown almost every aircraft in inventory, just incredible experience. It's It's been really fun to listen to. So anything else before we wrap up today, Colin? No, I think that'll do it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commission Ed. Thank you for listening to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. The views and opinions of the authors expressed herein do not state or reflect those of the government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Mention of any specific commercial products, process, or service by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or otherwise does not necessarily constitute nor imply its endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement.